John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, good evening, John. Good evening, Todd. I guess oh. it's you and I flying solo tonight. That's Greg right. Break us off, Greg is off uh, somewhere. But with him not in the house, we can say whatever we want on subjects where he has some level of expertise. And this is one of those. Of course, we all have a level of expertise on this, but this is a little bit different from our last few shows. We're going to deal with a, a small executive aircraft, a Lear Jet 25, in fact, from uh, December 9, 2012. And there are some members of our audience who know that date very well, because that was the date that, unfortunately, the very well-known singer, Jenny Rivera, was an American-born singer who was uh, famous for singing uh, a form of uh, music uh, popular in Mexico called banda music. Uh, she and her entourage were flying from a concert in Monterey, Mexico. And they were scheduled in Mexico City the next day. And about 18 minutes after takeoff, the aircraft apparently lost control and crashed, killing all on board, of course, including Jenny Rivera. And the Mexican government did run a full investigation. And as many of you know, it's the responsibility of the country where an event happened to investigate it. And they did have a very good 67-page report, which will be available on our website for you to download and read. And... Uh, this is an interesting event for several reasons, and one of them being that there's some information that they couldn't find from this event, including any flight uh, data recorder information. And apparently there was no available cockpit voice recorder information. So it was up to the analysis of the Mexican authorities with help from the NTSB and others to find out what happened. Yeah, it's quite interesting to see uh the international accidents like this, because we expect in the U.S. Uh, that our aviation standards, uh, which comply with the International Civil Aviation Organization standards, would be the same across the world. But we find oftentimes that the authorities, meaning the equivalent of the FAA for these, these countries, just does not have the capability of providing the oversight required. Now, Mexico was downgraded uh, by LKO for a number of years, uh, including the FAA, and they could not add any additional flights into the U.S. because of it. 
They could maintain the flights that they had in place, but they couldn't add any additional flights into the United States. And, uh, you know, economically, that was supposed to be a driver to help them get into compliance. But Mexico has been one of those countries that's been in compliance, out of compliance, depends on on the leadership in the country and the people involved. It's It's been frustrating for a lot of us aviation people to deal with Mexican uh, operators in the U.S. because they are, they really are very spotty up and down. And in fact, over the years, uh, uh, Greg and I have actually done uh, sort of an audit on some of these operators that Americans want to charter the airplanes in Mexico. And for the most part, we would discourage that, depending on the period of time. When they were not up to the certification levels needed to be, uh, we would tell them, you know, advise them. It'd be in their best interest to pick somebody else. Than, in uh, this case, um... In this case, it was a shared responsibility because the aircraft was actually owned by a U.S. company, registered as a U.S. aircraft. And in the report, it stated that the airworthiness of this aircraft, the oversight of the airworthiness, was the responsibility of the United States. But the qualifications of the pilots were the responsibility of the Mexican government. So this is an added bit of complication that uh, I don't usually see in, a, in an event like this. And if the airplane doesn't come back from the foreign country into the U.S., uh, very often, the FAA really doesn't have a chance for their inspectors to check the airplane on a ramp check to see if it, it meets uh, minimum standards. So they wouldn't dig into the minutiae, but they would look the airplane over, look for failure lights, look at, you know, do a basic check to see if there was anything not working. And the fact that it's in and out on a charter flight, unscheduled, operation makes it very difficult for the FAA to, to ramp check it. I mean, there's a lot of unregistered airplanes that never see the United States. They're operated on everywhere else in the world. And, and lots of people believe they get away with murder because they just don't have to comply with anything. The countries they operate in, they don't, they, that's registered in the United States. It's not our territory, which is not accurate, but that's the attitude. And, so the airplane never gets any oversight. And I know of a lot of airplanes years ago, a ton of 727s that were operating uh, in Europe and Africa and, and also into the Middle East that uh, and registered, but nobody ever looked at them from the federal government, from our government. There's just nobody there. We took, we at one point in time, many years ago, we had FAA inspectors located in a number of key spots around the, around the world. But those are long gone. The FAA pulled those out when they when they made some bilateral agreements that had the countries in question perform the ramp checks, but it never really happened. You know, maybe spotty at best. So well, it's you, interesting. You use the term uh, getting away with murder, and that's not to imply that there was anything um, deliberate about this event. This was literally an accident investigation. And as is the case with the U.S. and other places around the world, if there is any indication that there is any uh, deliberate action, sabotage, hijacking, et cetera, uh, either that would be handled by a completely different organization, as would be in the case of the United States, or it would be clearly stated 
in the investigation report that there was some sort of deliberate action involved. Nothing of the sort was in this report, but uh, some of the background information uh, may uh, cause a few questions in the audience. And some of the some of the background is fairly straightforward. This was an aircraft built in 1969. The accident happened in 2012, so it's about 43 years. Again, nothing unusual there. There are a lot of aircraft that old and older that are flying in the U.S. around the world. And as I stated before, it was operated by Starwood Management, a company in the U.S. The captain was very experienced, who had over 20,000 hours flying various kinds of aircraft, including the Lear. And the first officer was uh, rated as a commercial pilot, but he was not type did not have a type certificate for the Lear 25. And again, the uh, captain did. The first officer did not. That in itself is not uh, going to lead to an accident. And reportedly, the operator had encouraged their flight crews uh, not to enter issues into the maintenance law. So, so again, you know, that, that's not so uncommon. There's, there's a lot of operators, 135 operators, that tell their flight crews not to put anything in the logbook until they call the director of maintenance, which... Uh, I know that's in the manuals. I don't like that. Right? If you have something that's unairworthy, you're not calling somebody to ask Mother May I can I put something in the logbook. I understand why they don't want to. A US company, airplanes seeing a lot of operation in Mexico, and they don't want it written up because of the problems trying to get it fixed, including pots. You know, uh, most operators in the United States fully understand the hassle and additional expenses incurred bringing aircraft parts into a foreign country. Uh, even bringing a mechanic with tools. I mean, I've gone into, into foreign countries bringing my toolbox with me, and when we clear customs, you have to pay the duty on the tools. Even though you're going to be, in in a few hours, you're going to be going, leaving the country with your tools. But they don't treat it that way. They treat it as if you're bringing them into the country to stay. They want their tax revenue from it. So the costs incurred by U.S. companies to repair their airplanes out of the U.S. in some of these locations is really quite interesting and expensive. And so it's I not can like understand this. why they do that, but I don't agree with it. It's not like this aircraft didn't have any uh, inspections on it. And in, in the report, it stated that uh, five months before the event, there was a fairly significant um, 24-month, 12-month, 600-hour, 300-hour review of various systems of, of this aircraft. And it was documented that that was done. So uh, there had been someone looking at it. It was being looked at in the United States. And it had had, done, had been done, rather, uh, about five months before the event. The authorities had no record of any further inspections being done in Mexico or in the U.S. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's just that this report didn't say anything happening after July. Getting back to the undocumented events that were in this aircraft, the report stated that the accident aircraft had a known but undocumented flight control issue with a pilot who had previously flown this very same aircraft mentioning that it was flying crooked and that there were vibrations noted at certain airspeeds. And again, this is a, an issue that was known. No indication that the indication that the situation was directly addressed, at least none that was mentioned in the report. And I think I mentioned before, I'll mention it again, the accident was investigated by the Mexican, Mexican equivalent of the NTSB. And as is the case with these authorities around the world, they follow very similar ICAO-based standards in how they put in a report together. 
In this case, it was a 67-page report. It had data from radar tracking. It had other data, statements from people who had been involved in this uh, this uh, this uh, aircraft operating company and with people who knew the captain very well. And getting to the flight itself, the aircraft took off very early in the morning in Monterey, Mexico, 3.15 local time. And the flight proceeded normally. It was on an IFR routing going south toward Mexico City. The flight was going to last about an hour. But about 18 minutes after takeoff, when the aircraft was about uh, 27,000 feet and about 61 nautical miles away from the airport, there was evidence that from the radar track that the aircraft was beginning to lose control. And the aircraft dropped off the radar. And the wreckage was found later about two and a half uh, nautical miles from the last radar position. So and according to the report, there was a fairly steep descent from where it was at 27,000 feet down to the crash site. The crew had not issued any report of any malfunctions or any emergency, nothing on the transponder, nothing like that. And uh, this was a high-speed, high-angle uh, crash that destroyed the aircraft. There was no real recognizable large pieces of wreckage that was left there. And uh, this, again, uh, given that's a small executive-type aircraft, is not an unusual sort of situation we'd see with the loss of control. And, and John, being at the NTSB for a number of years, uh, uh, this is probably something you've seen all too many times. Uh, yes, but I'm, I'm bothered by a number of, of factors, and not just that. But I, let's take a minute and talk about the conspiracy theories that floated around. I know you did some work on like, trying to explore those out, and uh, it's amazing. Uh, everything we do today, we have a, a group of people all saying there's a conspiracy, there's a conspiracy, and, and typically we don't find it, we don't see it. Uh, I While I was at the board, I would keep my eyes on that for every piece of evidence that came in. Uh, and so it just doesn't occur, but what did you hear and what did you find when you did your work on this relating to conspiracies? Well, as uh, many of the audience members who are familiar with Jenny Rivera, uh, know that there have been a lot of uh, reports and even some recent television productions talking about titles like Who Killed Jenny Rivera and what sort of relationships did she have with various entities in Mexico and was she involved in this, that, or the other. All that aside, uh, there was nothing about this at the time of the accident or even later on that pointed to some sort of conspiracy. For example, within the report itself, they specifically mentioned that they found no evidence of a rapid depressurization. Uh, the windows and emergency doors and regular doors were all intact and in a closed position. So there was no evidence that this happened um, during the flight. There was no evidence of uh, any sort of explosion or fire in, in flight either. And I'd like to say that if there were something coming from the outside, let's say a surface air missile, this is the sort of thing that, although it does happen in some parts of the world, had it happened in Mexico, had it happened to someone of this level of prominence. And if there was any evidence, any eyewitnesses to this, there would have been some mention of it. There would have been an investigation. By the way, the weather conditions uh, that night were were good for flying. And uh, very likely, anything that was flying up toward the aircraft would have been seen. And as far as other uh, things that could have been delivered, if you had a, an explosive on board, again, the authorities saw no evidence of an in-flight fire or any depressurization. And given that small size of an aircraft, I 
find it hard to believe that you would have an explosive device on the aircraft and not lead to something that would be uh, obvious that there was an explosion, either a rapid decompression or internal damage, in-flight fire, et cetera. Well, it's it's certainly possible, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they looked at some of it. But, you know, when you go south of the border and you go south of Mexico and further south, you're, you're interfering with some very high-value traffic. And it could very well be that, that uh, some non-commercial airplanes like this, non, non-scheduled commercial airplanes like this, uh, could be confused for U.S. drug flights, interdiction flights, you know, and, and basically all bets are off when you go that much further south. However, the likelihood of this flight being um, misidentified, at least by the Mexican authorities, was very low because this was an IFR flight, meaning they had to file a flight plan with the air traffic controllers. There was a very specific routing that was part of the flight plan. And even though it was early in the flight, this plane had stuck to the flight plan. So from the surface, this was a regular executive flight, unscheduled Part 135 type flight. And I forgot to ask you earlier, you mentioned this was like a, a 135 operation. This was obviously in Mexico, and they have different rules for what is a 135 flight, but it would be operating very similar to an unscheduled 135 operation in the U.S. And, you know, you actually work with companies that do this on a regular basis. What differentiates a 135 operation from someone with their own IFR rating and commercial rating and flying their private aircraft? Uh, far higher, basically. If you, you're putting yourself out there to, to sell seats, sell transportation from point A to B, then you become a 135 commercial operator, which is just one notch below a scheduled aircraft, like a United Airlines or Aeromexico uh, type airline operation. All right, so the qualifications are less, restrictions are less, uh, but they're more. 135 is in the middle. 91 basically is what you fly under, what I used to fly under, and it's it's the the standard the bottom standard for flight operations. Once you put, go ahead. Put, once you put money in the middle of it, now you have to go up your training, up your maintenance requirements, and uh, recurrent training becomes an, an issue for your pilots. Right, so the cost of doing business goes up considerably. And therein lies some of the problems that, that surface in these operations outside of the U.S. because uh, they just don't look at those. And those pilots will, will uh, continue flying without having recurrent training. There, there's all sorts of, you know, you're supposed to do it every year. Well, maybe they don't get to it for a year and a half, you know, so and nobody's catching them, nobody's seeing it. And then this stuff goes on in places around the world all the time. It's not convenient to go get checked out because the, the school or the facility that you would go to might be a four-hour flight away. So they sort of delay it, delay it, and then all of a sudden they realize one day that they're six months out of out of uh, sequence for their training requirements. And then maybe or maybe not, they'll go get it. So there's, there's all sorts of these loopholes and, and things that occur uh, flying under the radar, so to speak, outside of the U.S. The U.S. carriers uh, uh, 
are, are involved in it because it saves money and they're not going to bring all these people back to the States. You know, this airplane, though, has come back to the States. So it's the fact that they, they uh, were operating without current pilots being current tells me that they, you know, they, they weren't the best operator in the world. Now, there were three other things about the investigation, which, if you look at this as an accident, there's no real conspiracy involved. But there's already a conspiracy floating about. You might look at this in a different way. One of the facts was that the NTSB was involved in helping with the investigation. In fact, the Mexican authorities recovered about 80% of the empty weight of the aircraft from the crash site. And some parts of the wreckage dealing with the flight control system were sent to the NTSB for analysis. But according to the report, at the time the report was written, the results of the analysis were not available. I don't know what that those results are. I'd love to see them. Second thing was there was a flight uh, data recorder on board, or rather they found the container for a flight data recorder at the crash site. They couldn't find the internal components of it, including the actual data. So it's absolutely clear that there was a flight data recorder container on board. It's not clear if there was a flight data recorder, the actual data available at the crash site. The third thing was that there, were, and this was kind of oddly worded in the report, it basically said that there was no indication that the aircraft was equipped with a cockpit voice recorder, and also that no cockpit voice recorder was found at the crash site. So I read that as saying there's no solid evidence that there was or was not a cockpit voice recorder on board. So it, the, the big takeaway from that is there are three pieces of evidence, the analysis of the flight control system, data from the flight data recorder, data from the cockpit voice recorder, that if you had all three of those, it would really go a long way toward uh, getting rid of some of the conspiracy theories about what happened. Another thing that's missing from this that uh, typically is found in NTSB reports is any sort of formal analysis of the pilots. What were they doing in the 72 hours before the event? Was there any sort of medical exam, a, a test of uh, the remains that could be done? Or even for that matter, if they were unable to do tests on the remains, that sort of thing is usually an NTSB report. There was nothing stated in this report. Not, not surprising. Well, we've we've had a lot of people talk to us via email about our pods being too long. So we wanted to break this one up into two parts. We wanted to state the, the facts of what happened so that we could have more time at the next podcast to go a deep and do a deep dive into all these issues that we've just raised uh, into this report. So having said that, tune in next week on the next issue of Flight Safety Detectives, and we'll do a deep dive on the analysis. And this week's, this episode's next last word is basically teasing that next one, uh, in that there are a couple of things there in the event that we can talk about in the next show. For example, there were six passengers who were scheduled to be on the flight. Only five showed up. Uh, the, the captain's son happened to be a pilot, also an airline pilot in Mexico. He provided several statements to the report that are in the appendix of the report. So I highly recommend that uh, you go to our site, download that report, and read them for yourself. And according to the same uh, person, the son of the captain, Jenny Rivera was considering buying the very aircraft she was on, and she was considering buying it a few days after the flight. So again, if those of you who have been following this closely know anything about that, please get in touch with us. And last thing, 
This aircraft actually had been involved in, a, in an accident before in 2005, about seven years before this accident. And we've included that report along with the other data on this page, this episode's website. And I'll give you the basic one, last word as I usually do. If you're going to go flying, do a great pre-planning session. Make sure you get the weather here, there, and everywhere in between. Good pre-flight. Still seeing people doing not so great pre-flights. And when you get in the air, put that head on a swivel because we got a lot of new people flying. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.